Hello, everyone. Today on another episode of the Mind Maladies podcast, we have Dr. Michael Army. He is an associate professor at Alpert Medical School of Brown University, whose day job is a research psychologist at Butler Hospital. Currently, he is a clinical psychologist that utilizes technology to detect high-risk and self-harm behavior. Is there anything else you'd like to speak about, um, Dr. Army? Um, sort of about where I come from and how I got into all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I, I have a fairly non-traditional route into uh, clinical psychology. After I got out of uh, college, I ended up spending a couple of years working as an orderly in a hospital, um, call them mental health technicians nowadays, and uh, had an opportunity to really learn a lot about mental illness and um, the intersection of psychology with mental health care, which spurred me forward to go into grad school and you know pursue clinical psychology. Um, Along the way, uh, and one of the reasons I got into doing the kind of research I do now, is I I really came to believe that um, our ability to identify and to detect a lot of these very high-risk behaviors that we oftentimes care about a lot in clinical psychology, well, we just don't have the ability to do that. And so I really dedicated myself to trying to understand how we can better predict and prevent these high-risk and and self-harm behaviors. Right. So what drew you to utilizing technology specifically for suicide prevention? Well, um, there's really this interesting sort of disconnect in psychology. We, we think about the way psychotherapy works. You know, it's about going in and seeing a therapist once a week and talking about your problems and formulating solutions. At least that's how it works for most people. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, most of the problems that people experience don't happen in or around the therapy session. And so what I see technology being useful for is to get closer to the moments in time where people need to better understand their behavior, to better understand the things that they're thinking and feeling, and ultimately using that information to deliver interventions when they're needed the most, when people are in crisis or when they're actively struggling with the problems that they're encountering in their lives. So before we get into the technology um, behind suicide prevention, which is the main um, topic that we're going to be discussing today, Um, I would like to comment on one rating scale that you mentioned in one of your studies known as the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. Um, Personally, I've never heard about this before, so I was wondering if you could talk about how um, this rating scale is used to predict suicide risk. So the CSSRS is, uh, and that's the acronym we use, um, it's used largely as a clinical screening measure. And what it's good for is to identify how people are feeling about suicide, their suicide risk right now in the moment. And so it's usually used in, let's say, an an emergency department or a psychiatric facility to quantify somebody's suicide risk. And and the CSSRS is quite good at that. Um, What it's not terribly good at is predicting suicide risk in the future. And and that should make a lot of sense because suicide is a state. It's something that changes from moment to moment. And so if you're feeling at risk now, that might give us information about whether or not you need certain levels of clinical care. But it won't tell us how you're you're thinking about suicide in, in three weeks, six months or any time down the road. Mm-hmm. Another technology that is on the rise is eye tracking technology. Can you explain a little bit what this is and how it can actually be employed to predict suicide risk? Yeah, eye tracking technology is really cool, and and we're seeing more and more of it all the time in in consumer uses as well as research. Um, The the eye tracker I use is a system um, that has two cameras, and what it does is it illuminates your face with an infrared light, and using that light, the cameras track the motion of your eyes. 
Um, and the way that this can be useful is when we're trying to understand, let's say, suicide risk that a patient is either trying to conceal or they may not even be aware of themselves. So the way we've used it experimentally is we present on the screen um, an image that's broken up into four quadrants on the screen. And there's a different emotional valence or a different emotional state in each of the windows. And so one, there's a positive emotion, another there's a negative emotion, another is a neutral emotion, and another one is a suicide-related uh, image that, that evokes an emotion. And what we find is that patients who are at the highest risk for suicide, they, their eyes will spend most of the time looking at the suicide-related items. Now, what's cool about that is we don't have to ask them about their suicide risk. We can simply mm -hmm. put an image in front of them, watch where their eye goes. When patients are receiving this treatment, is there any possibility that they, they know what they're going to be looking for so they can try to cheat the test by looking at some of the more positive quadrants? They could, but we're, we're not um, telling them ahead um, of time what it's necessarily for. And, you know, I'm, we're, we're still trying to think about how we would use this clinically. And the way we might think about doing it is, let's say somebody's sitting in an emergency room where they're, they're waiting to see a doctor, as is oftentimes the case, and the wait can be significant. They sit down and they, they complete a few oh, assessments, including something like this, which would then give us a sense of their risk. So we want to fold it into the way clinical you know, work is being done already, but the technology isn't quite there yet. Right. So it's going to be more used as a preliminary test rather than an actual um, preventive measure. Yeah. And, you know, technology isn't anywhere right now where we can say definitively mm -hmm. that right. is at risk. It, it's mm -hmm. all developing. But, you know, in the same way that um, Amazon knows what you want to buy before you get to the cart. Um, well, technology for psychology is likely to get there eventually, too. Interesting. So there are other technologies on that are um, rising popularity. Um, so one of this is the ecological momentary assessment. And so could you explain how this is used and some important results that are yielded as a result of this? Yeah, ecological momentary assessment is really my, my uh, favorite type of technology to use. Um, and it's actually uh, quite old. It's been around for, um, well, in various forms for decades. But the way we do it nowadays is we install an application on a smartphone. And you know the best way to do it is to put it on the patient's smartphone or the research participant's smartphone. And what e ecological momentary assessment does is throughout the day, it asks people questions about how they're thinking and feeling uh, right now in the moment. And one of the reasons that can be a really valuable technology is that when we ask somebody how they think and feel right now, they're not as likely to deceive or to try to tell a story about how they're thinking and feeling. Like, oh, I, I feel depressed, so I should tell the computer I'm depressed. It, it's a way of getting around those kinds of biases that people may bring when they're trying to complete um, assessments for us. And what we found when we look at these data is that we're able to identify moments in time where people's negative emotions and anger starts to build. And that those that building emotion is associated with increases in suicidal ideation. Um, and even some of these patterns can predict suicide risk out for a few months after um, they complete the research assessment. The goal here, of course, would be is to identify when this risk increases and when somebody is likely to be thinking more and more about suicide. And when the device identifies that risk, it deploys some kind of a treatment, some kind of an intervention to help the patient reduce the risk that they're experiencing in that moment. Um, so this is kind of similar to 
it, it prompts you and it prompts the patient who whose smartphone is on to sort of give um, their like moment by moment feelings as a way to assess their suicide behave, suicidal behavior or tendencies, correct? Yeah, or that's right. And, and we don't have to do it constantly throughout the day. Right. So normally we'd only ask these questions a few times and then, you know, using the, the, the marvels of modern statistics sort of figure out where the risk really lies. Right. So you base it on past data and statistics of if this person is feeling like this, knowing their history, it might lead to what they're feeling next. Yeah, and we're, we're building on a lot of the older technologies and approaches that we use to look at these data, and we're starting to use what, you know, is sort of the, the hot item in uh, statistics and psychology right now, which is machine learning. And when we start to apply some of those methods, we better understand um, not just sort of the moments in time, but the exact combinations of emotions and cognitions that are putting people at greatest risk for suicide. Now, of course, these kinds of uh, technologies are driven by the questions we ask. And so sometimes we don't ask the right questions and so we don't know everything we need to know. But as we explore these technologies more, we're getting better and better at identifying what factors put people at greatest risk. Uh, going a bit more into this, Ime, um, you said the app would prompt the patient maybe several times a day. So to eliminate any kind of variability between Data. Are these questions prompted at specific times throughout the day? Well, it, we start to get into the, 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 the details about how this works, and there are lots mm -hmm. of different ways that we can ask questions. So the most traditional way is to randomly ask throughout the day, and, and that's a way of getting around sort of time bias. So if we ask somebody at the exact same moments in time throughout the day, they may very well be feeling similar things because similar things tend to happen to us with routines. And we want to avoid that most of the time, but sometimes the routine matters. And so, for example, we might ask people randomly throughout the day how they're thinking and feeling and if they're thinking about suicide. But we also will ask them at the end of the day how they're thinking and feeling because we want to know exactly at the end of the day what they're experiencing. Uh, the other way that we can ask questions is we can have them complete an assessment when they do something that we're interested in. And that could be, you know, having a snack, that could be talking to a friend, that could be thinking about suicide. And lastly, and really the one that the technology is allowing us to do, is we can use information from, let's say, um, a, a wearable device like a Fitbit or from the phone's movement sensors. And when a certain thing happens, like a heart rate goes up to a certain level or a person walks to a certain location, then the phone can start asking questions. And so we're really, you know, the more that we, we develop this technology, the more complicated and more accurately we are, we're able to explore what people are thinking and feeling. So the hope for the future with this kind of technology is to get more nuanced with, um, some of the details and to get more accurate results. Absolutely. And you know, what we're really finding from these technologies is the best way to predict a person's risk is not to look at anybody else, but it's to look only at the person themselves and to really leverage what a person thinks and feels moment to moment and how they change from their own normal experience of the world and to use that information to identify their risk. So this kind of ties into the next technology that was one of the more intriguing ones that I found in your research was digital phenotyping. So can you explain how digital phenotyping can be used in a variety of different devices to predict suicidal behavior? 
Yeah, and digital phenotyping is really the, the new hot frontier in, in this area. Uh, what we do is we use, like I said before, wearables like a Fitbit or any other kind of Apple Watch or something like that. And we can use the data from heart rate sensors, from uh, skin temperature, from sleep data, from motion, GPS. If we want to pull your phone into the mix, we can use the light sensor on the phone. Uh, we can use audio data that's collected by the phone and look at various mm -hmm acoustic features of speech. Um, we could use eye tracking. We're, we're increasing uh, our ability to actually use the camera on your phone to do eye tracking. That's a little bit down the road, but something we're working on. But essentially what the digital phenotyping does is, is it, it tells us something about you, again, without having to ask you questions about what you're thinking and feeling. And so we can use those data. And oftentimes we use those data in combination with ecological momentary assessment to identify what patterns of the sensor data might be associated with emotions or might be associated with particular behaviors or maybe you, and certain digital phenotyping data is associated with you being in a certain place or with a certain person. And from looking at all those data together, we're able to gain these insights about a person and then use those insights to predict the kinds of behaviors we might want to predict. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason I think I found this the most intriguing is because it, it involves so many factors about someone's life and it can be applied to so many different devices. But as you mentioned in one of your studies, there are potential harmful um, implications of such things like digital phenotyping. So could you explain a little bit what these harmful um, side effects per se of digital phenotyping maybe? Yeah, well, what digital phenotyping is essentially doing is it's getting your digital pheno, uh, digital fingerprint. I was about to say a word called phenotype, which is the, sort of the scientific word we would use. Mm -hmm. And the phenotype is when uh, it basically it relates to this idea that there are behavioral manifestations of underlying biology. Um, and so what, what it really is allowing us to do is to understand a person in a very unique way, very much like the person's DNA. And of course, the risk then is if we have those data, then we can pick you out of the crowd and identify you without even looking at your face or talking to you or knowing any other information. Um, and, and already, you know, marketing companies are using the kinds of data that you provide on the internet to do exactly this. It's the, the recommended advertisements that pop up on your browser. Well, those are, I don't want to say evil exactly, but they're not necessarily fun ways to use this kind of technology. Um, but digital phenotyping is, I hope, a, a use of the technology and a use of these approaches to help people in the long run. But of course, the risks are the risks. And when the wrong people get their hands on these kinds of data, it can harm the individual person who's providing that data. And so I know scientists are working really hard to reduce the, the impact of that. And you know, we're hoping that our, our partners and friends in industry will follow along in the future. You mentioned that that there are all these technologies, but not all of them are being solely used for suicidal prevention. Um, there are, it, can you go into what other disorders some of these technologies are aiming to treat, such as bipolar disorder or PTSD? Yeah, so um, a lot of these technologies were used originally to help health behaviors. And so mm -hmm. um, reducing smoking, um, changing eating habits, that sort of thing. As we've gotten a better mastery of these approaches, we've branched out into other areas like um, understanding relationships, including conflictual or even abusive kinds of relationships, understanding substance use and abuse. Um, 
understanding post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety. You mentioned bipolar before, and, and one of the ways that digital phenotyping has been used is to uh, monitor the light sensor on a phone. And what the, the computer can tell us is when that light sensor is on most of the time, what it is oftentimes correlated with is somebody going into a manic episode, an episode where they're not sleeping very and that seems really obvious, but until you develop the technology to be able to monitor that in real time, right. that doesn't mean much to us. But, you know, we can use technology to, in many ways, this is a low-hanging fruit, right? This is the easy stuff we should be able to do quite easily, but we just have to find the, the will and the opportunity to make it happen. So we have, like, the means necessary sometimes, but we don't just, we don't have, like, the method to make it applicable yet. No. And, you know, we have a lot of technology that could be translated into clinical intervention, but there's oftentimes, and I hate to sound cynical for a moment, but there's oftentimes no profit in it. And so it can be really, really tough to find the right individuals who want to back the development of these technologies that can have a major impact on people's lives. Right. That is an aspect I, that I completely didn't consider. <laughs> I just assume it's all like funded. And, but I realized that, yeah, these um, companies making these products do need to have some kind of profit from it as as dark as that sounds um, it's true and you know um it, there are these little subtle things that that are challenging for the research community too like you know your fitbit's a great source of information but the the specific characteristics of the sensors and how they collect data that's not available to the consumer and it's not available to researchers and so there's a limit to how well we can use those data right mm-hmm um, sort of backtracking, what other, like cutting, like at the forefront of cutting edge, um, technological efforts are underway to predict suicidal behavior and or tendencies? Well, you know, I think some of the most speculative stuff we're doing nowadays is looking at things like your voice. Uh, and I don't mean the things really? that you say, but I mean the, the qualities and tone of your voice. Um, I have a, a colleague, Heather Shatton, whom I work with. Um, she, in a, along with a team at the University of Michigan, is looking at um, phone conversations, just the, the side of the phone conversation that um, the patient is engaged in. And by taking that, that audio information and applying um, these, these systems that extract features like pitch and tone and loudness and even occasionally some emotional characteristics from the audio, we start to figure out how to classify people into different categories. So the team at the University of Michigan, they first did this with bipolar disorder and they were able to identify when people transition from euthymic or sort of just normal mood into manic mood. Mm -hmm. And we've been applying these same kinds of technologies to classify suicide risk as well. Wow. Okay, so obviously there are many strides being taken to sort of reduce um, the symptoms of mental illnesses and try to treat mental illnesses. Um, but how obtainable are these technologies in modern day? Obviously not the speculative um, treatment you just mentioned, but the ones that are on the market, how obtainable are they for the average person? Well, there really aren't any technologies on the market right now that are empirically supported that most psychologists would, would encourage people to use. Um, if you go to the app store, like on your phone, um, pretty much nothing on the app store has what we would call empirical or scientific support behind it. So unfortunately, we're in this world where the technology is coming into focus, 
um, it's becoming more reliable, but we really haven't been able to translate much of what's happening in the research world into the consumer space, which we really need to do. Um, there are a lot of psychologists who are trying to partner with industry and they're trying to make those things happen, but it takes time and persistence and, and resources that you know sometimes take a while to develop. When, if you had to give a ballpark estimate, when do you predict these technologies will gain greater accessibility? Oh man, um, I, I'm feeling my jaded side come out here more and more. No, uh, and, you know, I think that we are, we're probably 10 years away from being able to do it. Whether or not we're able to find a way to work these systems into modern healthcare, that's a different question entirely. You know, it's a lot like fusion. Um, they've been joking for years that fusion's 10 or 20 years away. And it's, they've been saying that for like 50 or 60 years now. I think we're in the same space with these technologies. We just need to decide to do it. And the moment we decide to do it, we empower ourselves to be much more successful. Yeah, that's a great take on it. And hopefully, hopefully it is actually in 10, 20 years. Who knows? I, I hope I'm hoping I'm still around to see it happen. Of course. Um, one final thought to leave view, um, listeners with is how do you think we can reduce the stigma surrounding suicide, um, suicide patients and the treatment of suicide altogether? Well, I think the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has a good line on this when they say, ask the question. And, and really what they're saying is they want, they want people to talk about this. They wanna talk about the reality of suicide and that it is something that most of us are touched with in some way, shape or form, whether it be our own experience or the experience of a family, a friend or somebody else who's important in our lives. Um, you know, the stigma goes away when we acknowledge that these are normative experiences that people have, you know, from day to day. And, you know, although they're not pleasant experiences and they're not experiences I would want anyone to have, to deny that we, we feel this way sometimes, it was really to deny reality. And I'm not a fan of denying reality in any way. I think talking about it, being open about it, being honest, um, I think, thankfully, younger generations are much more aware of the importance of being open and honest and, and eliminating stigma than even my generation was. So I'm hopeful for the future. Of course. And adding on to the talking about it note, it's important to realize that talking about it, many people think that pl is planting suicidal thoughts in someone's head, but yeah. research has shown, I believe, that it actually, there's actually no correlation and it's actually better to ask someone about their suicidal tendencies or thoughts than it is to not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, we, we even did a study recently where we um, tested whether or not people felt better before or after we asked them um, difficult questions about their suicide history. And most people felt better talking about the difficult things simply because they had a chance to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So no, there's very little risk to asking people about yeah. their suicide risk. Yeah, sometimes it just feels better talking about something, getting it off your chest rather than just keeping it all in. Absolutely. And unfortunately, keeping it all in is one of the reasons why people struggle with these kinds yeah. of feelings. All right. Well, that's a great note to end the podcast on. Thank you, Dr. Army, for coming on. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And this, this was really, this is a really hopeful episode of the podcast and looking forward into the future. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you check out the link in the description to the Mind Maladies website. See you guys in the next episode.